0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we again want to affirm that which has already been expressed by way of prayer and song and scripture reading, that we are a people that have assembled for the purpose of um, giving our attention, our focus exclusively to you, and such is the nature of the call to, to worship. It's to direct our affections and thoughts and our strength toward declaring your excellencies um, in the presence of one another to one another, but always directed to you. Um, and it's an expression of um, our worship that kind of just spills out of the natural um, day-to-day life and experience when we sing and when we pray and when we affirm these things. And so we We thank you for this uh, call that you've placed on your people and the privilege it is to declare your excellencies and to worship you and to make much of you. And we ask that you would help us to that end, that we would be um, better and more faithful worshipers. And that means being rooted in truth, um, sometimes very hard truth, such as was expressed in Psalm 41 with uh, struggles, um, enemies that um, opposed David, and how it's fascinating that You used that providential circumstance of David to uh, design and to direct our own worship and to give us and direct our thoughts toward things such as the Messiah's own rejection. And so we we thank you for um, what's sometimes a painful providence and how it itself also provokes and directs us to worship. And we thank you for truths that we sang this morning, um, that you express your faithfulness and your goodness toward your people in ways that are just uh, quite extraordinary and uh, really provoke us to, to thanksgiving and to, to wonder. And so we thank you for that as well. And now as we soon turn our attention to Jude, it's our responsibility to, to act in service, as it were, to, to your word, to the body of truth that you've entrusted to your people, to, to labor and contend for one another, your, your beloved bride, your church And we recognize, though, that again, it it is your church, it is your word, you will accomplish your purposes, you will keep your people, you will preserve your word, but you've called us to engage and participate in that. And um, that calling is sometimes hard, and it's not always something that we necessarily want to do, but Lord, you've called us to be slaves, and so we want to submit ourselves in joy to our master and to walk in a way that reflects not only gratitude, but gratitude. faithfulness when things are are challenging and faithfulness in the the things that um, produce hardships because we recognize that there's an eternal weight of glory that's to be expected. Um, There's a a reward before us and no small measure that is again reflecting glory back to you. So we thank you for these things and ask that as we do the work now of laboring um, in the scriptures, seeing, hearing, teaching, that you'd be pleased and that, um, as the psalmist expressed in Psalm 119, that you would open our eyes and that you'd be our teacher. Um, We don't presume to just approach your word and uh, that that we have some insight and wisdom outside of the Spirit's gracious help. And so we do ask that you would help us, Lord. And may this time be found pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we'll be um, continuing our work in the book of Jude, and we'll be giving our primary attention to verse 4. So last week we began our engagement in verses 3 and 4, and this morning verse 4. So let's begin by reading Jude 1 through 4 together so that we can properly frame our engagement with what we've called the the rationale to the charge of the heart of the book. So the heart of the book, verse 3, and this is the rationale behind it. This is the why He's charged us to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so let's give our attention again to Jude 1 through 4. It begins, Jude, a slave, of G- a slave of Christ, Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace be and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. And then here's our rationale, verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, as I stated, we'll be focusing on uh, Jude 1 4 this morning, or Jude 4, and we'll certainly get there, but I want to frame our work today in the following manner. So we have four things I'd like to accomplish. First, the foundations for the rationale. So again, there's uh, verses 1 through 3, weren't there just to kind of pad. Verses 1 and 2 obviously provide an introductory foundation. Verse 3, the heart, and then verse 4, the rationale. So we're going to look at the foundations for the rationale. Second, the reasons for contending. You know, we've exhorted and called. We've had it big on the screen. Contend for the faith. And we've said that's really necessary and that that's part of your responsibility. It wasn't just Apollos or Timothy or the elders. It's our responsibility. So we're going to look at reasons for contending. Third, the call to contend. And then fourth, Again, our own charge in these matters. So let's begin with the framing of the charge for the rationale and its introduction of the offenders. Uh, We begin by once more recognizing Jude's self-identification as a slave of Jesus Christ, one who has brought himself into the absolute lordship and authority of Christ. He has forfeited his own lesser desires and ambitions and has brought them into concert with what pleases his master. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ, is writing to fellow believers, to those who also have brought themselves under the lordship of Christ and whose own identities are framed, or, or framed by God's divine salvific call upon them, a call that is filled out and expressed as their being beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. The Father is set as divine and perfect affection upon his people, and having given them to the Son, they are and always will be perfectly kept." Finally, in view of the forthcoming call or charge that Jude will give to these believers, he petitions that what they have in Christ, what we have in Christ, might be more fully supplied to them, namely mercy, peace, and love. With this, Jude then delivers his readers their charge. So that was the opening foundation, the introduction. And then we have the charge, a charge that was not an expression of his original intent and efforts in writing to them. That's what we really impact last week. He had a design, he had a desire, but he had to redirect. So he had to redirect, he made a definitive shift in giving his time, his strength, and attention from that which was precious and good, namely our common salvation— an articulation of our common salvation and immediately pivoted to our immediate need, namely that which was of unique weight and importance, that which he had to redirect to. So his focus in writing was now rooted both in conviction and urgency. So these beloved saints must take up the charge to contend earnestly for the faith. They must struggle, wrestle, and fight for the body of doctrine and inspired truths that both the Old Testament prophets and now Christ apostles have provided for them. That's the faith, again, that body of doctrine that's been passed along from the Old Testament prophets through Christ apostles, that doctrine, that body of doctrine and inspired truths that distinguish them also as plainly as the blessed and righteous man of Psalm 1 was distinguished from the wicked and unrighteous man, the one on the path of joy, reward, and glory, the other to suffering, punishment, and destruction. So again, the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints, that's a definitive identity of the believers. It's the apostolic teaching. It's the words of the apostles. It's what constitutes our faith. It's what directs and governs us, and it will distinguish, distinguish the righteous from the unrighteous. Again, as plainly as we see and are memorizing in Psalm 1, there's two very clear paths here. And so too here, the Word of God, it's a, you think of it as forging a great chasm as it were, between those identified as saints or persons shaped by holiness and those whose identity can be summarized simply as the ungodly. The problem here is those who try to merge the two and to do so in a a deceitful-like manner. So again, the word of God's causing a, a clear and natural division between the righteous and unrighteous or slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ, and those who are slaves to unrighteousness, their self and destruction. It's this defining body of truth, again expressed here as the faith, that the called out, beloved, and kept believers are to earnestly contend for now. And with this, Jude goes on to express why a clear rationale um, as to why, and it's a clear rationale for this charge to contend. So he doesn't just say, contend for the faith. It's been once once for all handed down to the saints, and now let's get to it. He actually says, this is why something's happened. It's going to write to you about our common salvation. I needed to pivot, needed to readjust. I've called you to this, and here's why. That'll be verse 4. But before we look at this, this rationale in verse 4 that expresses the immediate need to contend and implicitly the demands that accompany like actions, I think it's fair to back up for just a moment and ask a larger question. Because as we've expressed with contending I've already said repeatedly, and I I want you to be prepared. I want you to recognize it will come with loss, it will come with pain, it will come with struggle, and any other measure of unknown and known challenges. That's the nature of what you will experience if you faithfully contend for the faith. There will be loss and suffering and hurt. There'll be relational separations, there'll be frustrations toward people, there will be things that, again, it will cost you something. Because this is not a a fantasy or a fairy tale which you simply awake from after a a night adventure has passed. Like, I contended for the faith. You know, I really held fast to it, and I, I opposed the enemy. These are people, people that maybe you know and love, and some people that you've walked with for a season of time, or even others that just outright oppose you. But when it's those who have crept in within the church, there's a special measure of pain that's associated with it. And so again, this isn't just some book of stories that you can put down and pick up at your leisure about contending and fighting and wrestling. It's not even just a, a, just a, a difficult journey that someone must traverse. Again, this is our call. This is our call and our, this is what the Lord has charged us with, to contend earnestly and with this to accept and persevere through whatever it may require. And so with that said, We need to affirm for ourselves now at the outset of this call why it is necessary. Why is it necessary to contend for the faith, particularly when we know two things to be true? So, again, why is it necessary? Because you need to know that if you're going to persevere well. Being excited will get you a little ways, but only a little ways. So, why do we contend, especially in light of these two things? One, that God will forever preserve his word and that he will perfectly keep his beloved. So if we're contending for the faith, the body of doctrine that's been passed on to us, but yet it's God who preserves his word, and if we're contending to be kept and to to um, apply mercy toward one another and ourselves, why when it's God who keeps his people? Those are questions we're going to have to wrestle with if we're actually going to be able to persevere well. And so to think through it, again, we have some things such as Some of you may be remembering Psalm 119 as we we speak to these things. Forever, O Yahweh, your word stands firm in heaven. He keeps his word. Or the well-known and loved portion of Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Okay, so God's going to preserve his word. And now regarding keeping of the beloved, there's the precious assurance in John of, of, of Jesus in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. Or how about some of those precious words of Peter that we just revisited last week in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God will keep his word and God will keep his people. So with the weight and demands of this call to contend, I think it's really fair to ask a good question here. In view of God championing his word and the care of his people, why must we contend? God's going to accomplish this, right? I mean, we believe that to be true, that he will keep his word. We believe that he's going to keep his people. So the issue is not with the question, but with the tone and intent. So Um, All the time, and again, I apologize to those of you who are teachers and may have expressed this and maybe even convictionally hold this, there's no such thing as a bad question. I think there's bad questions. I think there's even terrible questions. (laughs) And this could be in the category of terrible question if it weren't for the tone. You could ask, why are we going to do this then? (sighs) God's going to do it anyway. Or you could say, Lord, I don't understand. You promised to keep your word. You promised to keep your people and yet you're calling me to this path of a lot of struggle, a lot of challenge and heartache. When you're going to do this anyway? Well, I think that's a fair way to ask it. And as long as it's asked in humility and as one who um recognizes that we're not necessarily going to fully understand, um but nevertheless we can submit ourselves to the to the Lord who is faithful. And I think there's a time to ask and to approach that. I think the Psalms ask a lot of honest and faithful questions with the right tone as well and we also recognizing that asking with humility and recognition of god's revealed care and even when we see god's revealed will and god's revealed character it's not going to absolve the tension we might just have to recognize that we're just left to trust and sometimes that sounds like well that's the easy way out isn't it no it's not the easy way out it's actually really hard and so we can ask And we can have to just recognize that we can trust the Lord, but it's a trust that's deepened and strengthened with time and experience as we both do and do not see a direct answer and resolution, but yet a clear answer and a perfect resolution. And such comes with when we contend because our Lord and Master has been pleased to express his perfect keeping of both the faith and the beloved by these means. That's part of the resolution, is that why do we do it? Because he's been pleased to use that. And so instead of maybe wrestling with that and be like, I don't understand because God keeps his word and God keeps his people and yet he wants to use me, maybe you should pause there and be like, wait a second, did I just hear that? He was pleased to use me. The Lord of glory was pleased to, to find my obedience and my effort and my struggle, as deficient as it is, useful to his purposes and that he was pleased to use us in this process of preserving both his word and his people a means that are expressed in part by our spirit-empowered striving, wrestling, and fighting, a means that exemplify and display God's glory in ways that otherwise wouldn't be seen. You know, that's part of contending is that we see expressions of God's glory and character in ways that we otherwise never would. So we contend because this is the good pleasure of our master, and it brings great glory to him. Oh, my apologies. So, just by way of illustration, um, how many of you enjoy reading uh, fictional books? Or, oh, you have more time. Um, <laughs> there was a time when Denise had more time, more discretionary time as well. And there's a, an advantage to reading stories. That stories are informative, express creativity. The Lord's made us to be creative. But Denise had more time to, to, discretionary, to do discretionary readings. And occasionally, I'd see where she was in her book. Maybe she's in chapter 8 or 10 or whatever. And so I'd go to chapter 13, 15, somewhere in there. And then I'd just start reading several chapters ahead. And then I always had that that knowledge. I know what happened to these characters. I know how the story is going to develop. And, you know, I would taunt her with that. And it wasn't because I was a bitter person. I just needed more rest, a little less stress, um, so I could find more reasonable forms of entertainment. But... Nevertheless, I was teasing at the prospect of something, and it's something that we're getting at here. God's called us to contend. That's part of our obedience. He's pleased to use us, and there's an outcome. So I was teasing at the prospect of spoiling the journey for because the outcome is always almost certain, right? You you know the principal characters are going to probably survive, or at least they're going to die well, one of the two. So at least broadly speaking, you know what's going to happen, but the conclusion is what? I would argue it's sweetened. It's filled out and more fully informed by the satisfaction that comes with walking through the journey. You don't pick up a book like I did and be like, okay, let me get the first chapter or two and get the the main characters and let them develop a little bit so I can have some measure of attachment and I can actually care about their outcome, and then just flip it to the end and be like, oh, that's how it went. That's nice. Why do you read the body of the book? Because there was a value to that journey, wasn't there? And why do you enjoy the end so much? Because you walked with them all the way through it. And I would argue that's part of what the Lord's gracing us to do. He's called us to do something. He's actually pleased to use us, and he uses that expression and those experiences. Because again, in some measures, we have to be content to recognize that the incomparable and glorious God, who has redeemed a people for himself, is pleased to cultivate a measure of glory through the process, the process of our growth, our struggles, and our contending. You know, the Lord's even pleased to use deficient contending, because when we're called to contend for the faith, it's not like God's saying, oh, thank thank goodness, thank me um, that I have my champion now. No, it's not that we've all of a sudden swooped in and rescued God's plan. It's that God was pleased to use us and in that process to shape us and to make us better worshipers. So with this, let's very briefly highlight three personal examples of God's glory uniquely put on display through the challenging journey of his faithful keeping. So three persons that you're obviously very familiar with, if you're any form of a Bible student, you have Job, Joseph, and Esther. And... Job, obviously well-known for his uh, severe trials, Job provides for us one of the most painful expressions of God's mysterious power, keeping, and care, a journey that ended with worship that had been enriched through an experience that was never fully resolved outside of a recognition of the incomparable glory of God. But later, what does James do? James picks up and says, You remember Job? And and James reminds us that there was a sweetness to the compassion and mercy of God that would not have otherwise been expressed or experienced without the pain of that journey. It was part of that experience in which God not only revealed himself, but showed his sufficiency and demonstrated himself and his character in ways he otherwise wouldn't have. So James tells us, Behold, we count those blessed who persevere. You have heard the perseverance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That The Lord is full of compassion and merciful because Job went through what he did, James could say, you know what, you need perseverance, and we can look at Job. We could look at Job, and if his story was just wealthy man lives, wealthy man dies, and we didn't have that story in between, we might be like, well, what happened to the part of his family there, and what, maybe some of his uh, resources wouldn't necessarily make, a, we wouldn't have details that we could fill out in that regard, but what we do have as a measure of expression with perseverance and God's sufficiency and his glory put on display. And then James says, look at the perseverance and patience of Job. And it makes sense because of that journey, right? And the demonstration of God's faithfulness throughout it. And well-known is the story of Joseph, a story of great lows and highs, a story that we might have carelessly rewritten and casually directed Jacob and his sons just to go down to Egypt for a time so that God could accomplish his purposes with them so they could go from a clan to a mature nation. That would be our rewrite. It would probably just, again, be like, well, was that really necessary, all those experiences with Joseph? Because Jacob's going to end up in Egypt, and the people are going to be nurtured there, as it were, and eventually developed into a great nation but was that necessary to experience that for Joseph? Well, absolutely, because we would have lost the beloved statement by Joseph, and with it, the complicated and sovereign magnificence of God when he states, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day, to keep many people alive. Again, God could have just brought the people down, but he wanted that Filled out experience of faithfulness and demonstration of of his peculiar providence and how he uses nations and individuals and households and all kinds of magnificent things that you lose if you lose the journey. And what of Esther? A story of God's peculiar providence unfolding in the most unlikely of ways to preserve and even strengthen his exiled people. So you may have noticed, uh, I know some of the digital calendars can be frustrating. If you click U.S. holidays, it's like, and then you're thinking, Wow, I I wish I I worked at a bank because, you know, they get a lot of those days. But, and if you do, I I apologize. I'll poke fun at somebody else later. But you might have noticed there was a holiday Thursday. And some of you are thinking, yeah, it was really fun. You know, they dyed the river in Chicago and all that stuff. No, no, there's a better one. There's one that extended much, much further back. And, again, I don't mean that uh, the celebration of another unique expression of providence, which, again, St. Patrick or Patrick of... Ireland or actually Patrick of England that went to Ireland is a magnificent story of God's providence and in terms of even missional work. But rather, I'm speaking of the holiday of Purim that celebrated was celebrated from the sunset on Wednesday all the way through the sunset on Thursday, a holiday established back in 473 BC and that continues through the present. A remembrance of what a what was a frightening and dangerous experience for individuals and ultimately the whole of Israel. You know, we've prayed, Pastor Frank is praying, the Lord keeps his people, right? He's kept his plan and put it in motion. Well, this goes all the way back even to what was happening here. And so the whole of the nation, not just individuals, not just families, but the whole of the nation of Israel, at least in the exile, was in jeopardy. And it ended with demonstrating the glory of God and the keeping and blessing of his people. And we read in Esther nine twenty to 22. Then Mordecai wrote down these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in the province of King Arsirces, Ar- both near and far, to establish among them to celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adar and the fifth day, 15th day of the same month annually. Because of those days, the Jews obtained rest for themselves from their enemies. And it was a month which was turned around for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. But that's not how it started, was it? You know, it was a grudge match that turned into a, uh, a, a gripe toward an entire nation so as to literally destroy the entirety of a people, and then the Lord's kind providence raising up an unlikely candidate to be queen and in circumstances that we wouldn't necessarily be excited about but put her in the position she did so as to preserve the Lord's people. But Mordecai reminds us of something, doesn't he? The Lord's grateful to use you, but he doesn't need you. And that's something we need to remember with contending. Let's not get so excited that, wow, we're God's champions, and if we don't do this, no, it's that he's just pleased to use us. And then he's called us to be doing these things. He's called us to faithfulness. So while God will ultimately be he who keeps the faith, He's been pleased to accomplish this in no small part through our own contending for it. And why? Well, because he receives glory in the journey, because he receives glory in the struggle, because he's pleased to reveal things that otherwise wouldn't be known through our contending. So again, we have these experiences and our own that will be painful and difficult, but will also yield glory to God in ways otherwise not seen, known, or experienced. And so we have our foundations provided by Jude in verses 1 through 3, and now we have worked through the tension of why a charge to contend when God will perfectly keep. Again, I think that's really valuable when we're heading into something that's really hard. So as we engage the rationale for Jude's specific call to contend for the faith, let's once more read verses 3 and 4 together. Jude writes, Beloved, While I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we plainly see, Judah's laid out why he has given this call to contend. They're clandestine offenders, so secret offenders. They've snuck in clandestine offenders within the local church who in their profound ungodliness and grossly abusing grace and denying the principal element of the identity they have assumed as being Christians, namely their identity with Christ, they've crept in. They've come in and they've sought to do harm. And again, Jude plainly states of these persons that they have crept in, they have been long expected that they are ungodly, that they abuse the grace of God, and they deny our Master and Lord. Matters to which we will now turn our attention. So first, they've crept in unnoticed. They've crept in unnoticed. And we implicitly understand this to be a reference to them creeping into the local church. Jude does not... um, explicitly say this. So this is a conclusion we reach, even though Jude never mentions that he's writing to a local church. He never states to the saints in this place or to the believers here. He just writes to the beloved, to those who are called. And yet we're making, I think, a reasonable deduction that he's saying they've crept into the local church, not just your family units, not just people in your spheres of influence, but the local church. And we can reasonably conclude this because of the nature of the threat and their participation in the life of the church. So regarding the nature of the threat, Peter's already stated to them in um, 2 Peter 2.1 that they're false teachers. And where does a false teacher operate? They operate in a context in which they can teach, in which they can instruct, in which they can uh, presumably make God's truth plain to God's people. And regarding the participation in the life of the church, both Peter and Jude make reference to their being among the believers at their love feast. So we see that in 2 Peter 2.13 and Jude 1.12, meals that would culminate with a shared participation of the Lord's Supper. So this was the formal gathering of God's people, and they've crept into that. And it's not like, oh boy, they've spoiled the meal. Now this is, they've come into the fellowship in an intentional way so as to be identified with the visible, defined body of Christ, but they were actually not among them. But why have they crept into the local church? I think that's a good thing to ask. So, again, as soon as we sing, um, some of you wonder where I disappear to. I like to check the doors, and I like to just button everything up, and then we can continue on. Things you don't need to worry about, probably things I don't have to worry about, but I'm mindful— And mindful someone may come in. Why? Well, because who knows, maybe they'll be disruptive. So why are they coming in though? Are they just coming in to be disruptive? No, they're coming in to destroy. They're coming in to do much more than would be visually obvious. Because they desire to inflict the maximum measure of destruction on individual believers and the local church as a whole. They do so in secret trying to mix in among God's people. And this is not a matter of someone, again, who's not grown up or is culturally unaccustomed to religious meetings, so they're, you know, they're sneaking in. I could understand that. We do some peculiar things. We get a whole bunch of people together, various ages, and then we start singing together. You know, People don't do that very often anymore. And then you stand in, or listen to somebody, and then people close their eyes, and somebody starts talking every so often. It'd be really peculiar, culturally speaking, But this wasn't someone that was unaccustomed to religious meetings, so they're kind of sneaking in, trying to figure out what's happening. No, this is an intentional infiltration. Admittedly to, um, again, what we do might be strange to some, but this was not them acclimating to a subculture of a church meeting. This is them identifying with the church in a deceitful way. These persons who want to fit in and be seen as one of the people, even while being utterly distinct from them in motive and heart and conduct, So it's a tactic of destruction and harm that's particularly cruel and effective because why? Well, your guards are down, right? What do we do? We welcome people. We're always grateful. If someone says they're in Christ, then we rejoice with them. And the focus is not on uh, bearing up under mocking and slander or like actions. We're not looking and being like, oh, who's going to be assaulting the faith today, you know? Saw how Anton was looking at me, he might be challenging me on these things. No, it's it's not that at all. Or it's a different disposition. Rather, the focus is on walking together, encouraging and strengthening one another in truth, and praying and worshiping together and bearing one another's burdens. And so when someone comes in under the pretense that they want to join and participate in that, that's the we give that benefit, right? It's part of our expression toward them having a love for them, believing all things, and wanting to be charitable, wanting to be gracious. So it's in this context of mutual trust, affection, and care that the assailants introduce doubts, distort truths, and even entice some into carnal sin. So again, you can imagine, I could sneak in there, well, you know, I heard what he said, but uh, scriptures aren't really clear on a lot of things, and I don't know if they're always right. Like, If you heard that out there, you might be like, ah, apologetics, I need to attack that. But you hear it here, and you're thinking, I don't know. Well maybe they're right. You wrestle with it in a different way. And therefore they are wolves donned with sheep's pelts, knowing that a rushing to the herd in their plain appearance will what would that do? It'd rouse the um vigorous defense of the shepherds and the alert disposition of the sheep who will flee and elude them. So they know better than that. They know better to rush in and say, I'm a false teacher. And what do they do? They they creep in unnoticed. And so the wolf mingles not with a special pelt, but with the language of scriptures and, the, unexpe- and the, the expressed disposition of one who claims Christ as Lord. They use what I, would talk, what I reference to as God talk. They, they, they appropriate our language. Uh, they, they talk of the scriptures, and they, they speak of the things of the Lord in some form or fashion, and they claim to have a testimony, um, provoking wonder and curiosity with their thoughts, reflections and instructions from the scriptures, and excusing their indiscretions as, you know, that's a liberty. We're free in Christ, or the grace looks over these things, or perhaps even elements of a person in progress. You know, I'm struggling with sin just the same as you are, and so they, they warm you up and make their sin more casual, you know, struggling just like everyone else is. And in this, they've exploited the trust that is naturally expressed out of love toward others and also the goodwill of those who themselves are laboring to understand and apply God's word. And so you can see why this is a particularly cruel approach and strategic in terms of the enemy. And as stated, they do this with the intent to destroy. They're not curious. They're not struggling. They're not in progress. They come with the intent to destroy. Accusations that we're not cavalierly throwing at them. You know, we don't want to casually be like, "Ah, well, these people, they're terrible. I could tell when a terrible guest comes and when a good guest comes. Now, we're not just throwing these things out, them out there. does the scripture And What has Peter warned us about? And what does Jude say now? Well, in 2 Peter 2.1, 1, we're told that they are secretly introducing destructive heresies and denying our master. And I plan to come back to this next week, but I told you when we were in 2 Peter, be slow to unholster that heresy gun. But again, why is it there? Well, it's there to be used sometimes. And so we need to use discretion. We need God's wisdom to recognize they're coming in not because they're confused and not because they're in in progress, but rather with the intent to introduce destructive heresies, destructive teachings. In Matthew 7, verse 15, and Acts 20, verse 29, we're told that they are ravaging or savage wolves intent on devouring the flock. So again... The intent is plain. So they've plainly crept in with the intent of destruction, producing denials and distortions of the faith, or that body of doctrine that's been entrusted to us, and feeding the very things that holiness demands that we mortify. Again, you feed it, it'll grow. And there's certain things that if you feed, it will continue to grow, including carnal things, and they they will pursue that. So what are we to do? Well, we can't peer into uh, into people's souls, so we can't have Willem stand at the door and be like, See, that you have malice intent in your heart. We, we can't do that. We don't have that kind of discretion, that kind of ability. And we'd be fools to presume, presume that such efforts um, to do harm would not visit our own local fellowship. So we can't scan a heart as they come in. We don't know the intent of, of people that want to be part of the fellowship. But we also would be incredibly naive to presume, you know, we're small and sweet and we have nice snacks. Why would someone want to come here and hurt us? Well, that would be really, really naive, wouldn't it? Because what you are and what you're constituted to be is part of the body of Christ. And therefore, you are a target of the enemy. And we do, so what do we do? What we do is we've been told and it's been modeled for us. And speaking to these matters, Jesus instructs us to what? He says, beware, beware. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by what? Their fruits? So while we cannot peer into the souls of men and women, we can recognize that holiness and sanctification will produce evidentiary fruit and that a carnal pursuit of this world will also show itself in time. We also apply due diligence in the work we've been entrusted. In his final charge or engagement with the Ephesian elders, Paul stated, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. So again, here's that echo of Jesus' call to beware that Paul picks up also. He expressed it as, be watchful, and in this, Paul spoke of a clear threat to the local church, namely that threats could be anticipated to come up from where? Within the church, and possibly from the very ranks of the elders themselves. That to me is one of the most weighty warnings in the scriptures, especially for the New Testament church, is that you could have a spoiling from within, and specifically from within the leadership. That's frightening. And so he says men who would speak perverse things and do what? Draw disciples away to themselves? Need to pray for our preservation. Need to pray the Lord keep us. But also, again, we know from the larger context of Paul's discourse to the elders, the Ephesian elders, what did he do? How did he contend? Well, he vigorously exercised the call to contend for the faith in the context of the local church while serving in his situation in the shepherding role by means of exhaustively teaching and discipling admonishing, correcting, and modeling a life of service. So again, we've talked about what does that contending look like? Well, here we have our first major example. It looks like discipleship, investment in one another, correcting as necessary, and modeling faithfulness to one another. That's part of contending. That's part of defending the faith. So again, once more, this is a threat for which we must be diligently aware. The fact is that time and time again, there have been those who, again, have crept in unnoticed, did not publicly declare their intentions, their distorted thoughts, or their insatiable appetite for sin. And this is going to happen. It's one of those unpleasant things that part of a parent's job is to occasionally tell a child that you have to, you have to be prepared for some painful things in life, and here's, here's something that may or may not happen. These things may or may not be introduced in your life. In church, you have to recognize these things very well may happen. Good, faithful churches all the time, all the time, because there's not going to be a separation of the tares from the wheat until when? The end. And the tares are mixed in. And again, that's the Lord's dealings, and, and we can trust him with the preservation and care of his church. It's more perfect than what we could do for ourselves, but we are called to participate. So what do we do? We conduct ourselves with vigilance and stay busy about the work of contending as necessary both proactively and are building one another up and reactively and opposing those who would do the body harm. And the nature of opposing may take a range of forms. At times, this may first be expressed with varying degrees of church discipline. And again, people might think, well, that's so unloving, and church discipline, that's a bygone thing. Now, that's part of the preservation and the integrity of the local church, moving from private to public rebuke and ultimately putting of someone out of the fellowship if they are persistently unrepentant. It may take the form of more direct public rebukes of false systems of teaching or distortions of the scripture. You know, there's times to name names. There's times to say, you know what, this is a false religion. We do that with missions moments, and you know, it's a dance that we have to do sometimes because, you know, not everybody would be in agreement with us on certain conclusions, but we would say, oh, this is for gospel integrity, we need to pray for Christ's church. And we need to recognize this is not an accurate reflection of Christ's church, and so we need to pray for those who are faithful. And so there's times to publicly declare these things. Again, times of naming names. I don't want to make sport of it, um, even make a habit of it. I've even I've talked to Frank and Matt at different times in terms of... Um, I was thinking about mentioning someone this week, and I think both of them were like, nobody even know who he was. And I, I mentioned his name Denise. She's like, I don't know who he is. I was like, how do you not know who he was? I was talking about this guy 20 years ago. But nevertheless, there's a time to do that. And it may include, again, not only naming, naming of persons, um, a naming of false systems and whatnot, because we have to protect the flock. It's a range of expressions of protection. And I know that all sounds very unpleasant. At least I hope it should. Because if you get excited about, you know, yeah, church discipline. Let's clean this place up. And if you get excited about, let's name names. Let's start putting things down. Boy, I hope you see that as as morbid as somebody that's like, kid disobeyed? Yeah. Been waiting to spank somebody today. It's not right. It's, uh, it's distressing. Now, if it's a, you know what, I care for your soul well enough, I'm going to restoratively discipline you, and that includes some measure of punishment and pain, then we'll go where we need to go. And we'll do so with humility and sadness of heart. And it's the same way with protecting Christ's church. We don't do this in a celebratory fashion. It should have a weight to it because it's a weighty matter to levy charges of this nature. But that does not mean we can sit silent when the call to contend demands otherwise. So again, shame on the one who keeps the hair the sea gun holstered when they needed to pull it out. Um, we need discretion. We need the Lord's help. And we need humility, especially because of the nature of those who creep in and the immeasurable harm they'll bring—we can't overlook that. Be like, boy, you know, they came, they're here. Who wants to be the guy that, or the the gal that uh, has to address someone on their sin or they're leading others astray? It's not easy work—the work of contending. But we have to beware. We have to be diligent. And I clearly—I um, recall such warnings coming to me back in my my Bible college days, and you know. You have various pastoral ministry classes, Bible college, theology classes, and we'd be discussing such matters, and in particular, on the unique impact of Karl Barth. Does anybody even know who Karl Barth is anymore? Yeah, so some of you from maybe theology, Bible, but even maybe philosophy and even education and whatnot, he, he had his mark on the evangelical system. So much so that when I was doing some looking, I don't like to name names and throw things out there cavalierly, I was very familiar with him on some levels. But even this last week, I was looking at a major Christian publication. I'll just leave that unlo- uh, leave that there. With the term Christian in their name, and um, they were mentioning that he was one of the most influential uh, Christian theologians of the 20th century. I thought influential, yeah, he had an impact, but it was a horrible one. I don't call that influential. I'd say devastating. And what was striking to me was. I'd be warned about him and people like him, not just, oh, because of what he teaches or what he's done, but the warning was this. To a bunch of young men pursuing pastoral ministry was, you need to recognize that there are men who traveled to Europe to confront Karl Barth and to dispute his claims and dispute his system of theology and teaching and whatnot, only to ultimately be swayed by him themselves. He was very good at what he did. And he was very deceptive and and strong in his craft, as it were. And I've seen like tragedies repeat themselves in the lives of others. People that, I'm going to take that on, or I can walk into this, and I can come out unscathed. And they're putting themselves in dangerous situations under teachers that ought not to be teaching, and they get carried away. And it's devastating. And if you walk long enough, and if you walk in the the context of church and leadership— and experiences of people, you will see this. You'll see good people, people that were friends, start buying into things. You're like, that doesn't make sense. And they really are immersed in it. Even just this week, as an exercise in preparation, I chose to read up on a man who had been impactful in the seminary and church world, but had gravely strayed. This is the one that I named him. And again, everybody's like, well, nobody knew who he is. That's why right. I'll leave him unnamed at this time. But I knew of his primary theological distortion, um, namely the the distortion of a morbid view of free will to its to its radical extreme, of uh, open theism and whatnot. And I was attempting to make sure I was clear on the accusations of where he took that theology. And then I f- stumbled up on that he actually was accused of other things, a form of inclusivism, where basically, you know, the grace of God so magnificent it can reach unreached peoples. Um, and, you know, if they have some form of God, then there's grace to cover that. And so I wanted to be fair and honest in my evaluation of him, and I wasn't familiar with the inclusivism charge, and so I saw a footnote or an article he had wrote about that. So I thought, I need to read that to make sure that I'm accusing him or being aware and warning people carefully enough. And in my reading, um, I came across that journal article that he explained his position, and you know what I found? I didn't find, like, huh, This idiot, why is he in this major theological journal? You know, this high-level, peer-reviewed article and and one that seminary professors and doctorates contribute to. No. What I saw with him was a masterful weaving of truth with air, this beautiful expressions of our redemption in Christ mixed with the grace of God and the work of Christ being so effective that it reaches these other people, too, that have never even heard of Christ. Isn't it magnificent, this grace of God? And it was, and you can think, well, of course that sounds ridiculous, and it does. But you kept weaving and weaving and articulating and expressing, and well, have you think about this? What do you think about that? And I found it rather distressing and easily of the nature that if he was teaching in a local church context, it wouldn't be a journal article that you're holding up under scrutiny, but it would be somebody that's teaching so well, so beautifully, so clearly. And then he slides that in, and you start thinking, I don't know, maybe that could be true. And then he continues to develop it, and you start thinking, you know what, that is right, and I, that's the, isn't the gospel amazing? And he continues to weave that in, and I would see that if he was in a form of leadership in a local church, you'd have no small measure of either confusion, disruption, or outright corruption. And So beware. Beware. But being aware is not being paranoid. You don't need to to, to to presume that everything that comes has to be highly scrutinized to the point where I don't know if I can trust anybody teaching here. But beware, beware. We simply have to live with this dual responsibility of diligent faithfulness and a proactive awareness that may at times require a clear measure of contending. When someone does these things, we might have to oppose them. But we also take heart that all such matters are expected. They're expected. We know this is coming, not because the church suffers from insufferable flaw that, you know, just can't find a good good teacher these days, or you know, bad teachers are going to get woven in. But as Jude states, such persons were long ago marked out for this destruction. This was what was anticipated. This was what was written about. This is what we knew was coming. Now, with this in Jude chapter one verse four, we so we recognize they, it was declared long ago, and that sounds like wow, back in the old days, or the ancient days. And this language long ago does not have to mean from ancient times, but can also include more recent matters too. And while Jude arguably does have a view to the longstanding testimony of the scriptures regarding these kinds of persons, he clearly is also considering the truths previously expressed by Peter as well. So we know that Jude leaned on Drew from Peter, both framing the historical precedent of like offenders with a view to their full and final judgment. We saw that again multiple times in 2 Peter, and we'll see it in Jude. So again, as you recall, in 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10, there was a, a buildup of these successive examples, these Old Testament examples, and at the end of which Peter states where God demonstrated righteous judgment, God demonstrated righteous judgment, God de- demonstrated righteous judgment, and then he concludes with, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust and despise Authority. So I think he's drawing from that. We we knew this was going to happen. We knew this was the case. We've seen historical precedent for this, and Peter makes a clear argument for it. And then once more in chapter 3, verse 7, um, Peter also states, But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So again, Jude looks back to that. This has been written. This has been declared. We knew this was going to happen. Again, references that I'm confident Jude had in mind when he stated the condemnation has long ago or long beforehand been written of them, particularly as he makes a clear reference to this portion of Second Peter, also in verse 18 of Jude's own letter. Even so, I would still argue that Jude also clearly had other ancient prophecies in mind, too. So he is looking back to Second Peter, to the precedent that was established, to the articulation of God's righteous condemnation and judgment of the ungodly, but he also has a view to ancient prophecies, all the way back to Enoch, such as were, again, and he quotes Enoch in his own letter here, where he states, quote, "...behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him." Again, that was Enoch, as cited in Jude 1, 14 and 15. And perhaps you notice something rather interesting about the prophecy here in Enoch. Four times, what does he do? He refers to the offenders as ungodly, either in their personal identity or to describe their conduct. So such are the ones who have throughout history been marked out or identified in the writings of the scriptures as a danger to God's people and destined for condemnation. So it's most natural that this in turn is the first of the descriptions that Jude now provides of these offenders. They are ungodly persons. Again, that identity, ungodly persons, not an especially challenging title or description to understand. We can say ungodly, and I think even our little ones could say, well, I have a good idea of what that means. These are those who are separated from God and have no regard for him, his principles, precepts, or his commands. They do not walk in lives of holiness or submission to a righteous God. By the very nature of their identity as ungodly persons, they are stated to be outside of Christ who came to die for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6, that they might be delivered from their sin, not so that they would persist in their indulgences, but be free to walk in holiness. We see that in Titus 2, 11-14. And it's the ungodly who are ultimately being kept for the day of judgment and destruction. Again, 2 Peter 3, 7. Now, whereas ungodly can be a sweeping picture of the character and offenses of many, Jude goes on to more precisely indict these clandestine offenders with the further description, not only that they're ungodly, but in their ungodliness, they're doing what? They're abusing God's grace, an abuse that is frequent element of such offenders, but not a guaranteed element. Again, this is one of the things we were wrestling through. I was talking to Frank and Matt. Is this a, do we have to say this is a staple pattern? And I was... i screenshot the, um, the um, Nasby text and the Greek text to Frank I said, is this necessary? Are they always coupled? Is it necessary here? Because we need to recognize, is it, are they always uh, sexual deviant offenders that abuse the grace of God in this way, or is it just a common pattern? Well, I would argue that it's clearly a prevalent pattern among those who Peter anticipated and Judas said has, he's now encountering. And it's a quite common pattern for false teachers in general. It's not necessarily something we can always expect, but it is a very, very common pattern, even to the point where, again, when I was researching on Carl Barth, even just following up for due diligence, I didn't know that, maybe you did, that he was having an adulterous affair for a number of years. And it's like, well, that doesn't surprise me. And he covered it with the grace of God. Um, an abuse, again, expressed turning from the grace of God into a form of licentiousness or sensuality. A form of ungodliness that most plainly betrays these persons, neither know the true character or identity of the Lord or his grace. And while sexual immorality of any nature is clearly offensive and dishonoring to God, to engage in such matters under the covering of God's grace, that's unbelievably morbid and offensive. God's grace is absolutely to never be relegated as an excuse or covering for any sin, particularly sexual immorality, especially when it is grace that does what? It frees one from sin and that covers the repentant sinner. So to use God's grace as a covering or excuse for sin is an indication that one has no again understanding of either God or of his grace. Such matters are shameful and the appropriation That is shameful in the appropriation by the carnal man who plainly has no regard for the things of God, but for the ones who claim Christ, and worse yet, to lead his people providing some measure of instruction, being a false teacher, this is unfathomable. That is, unless their intention is set on what? The destruction and shame of Christ and his church, right? Makes perfect sense at that point in time. All according to the adversary's plan. We see that in Second Peter 2, too. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way the truth will be maligned. And so we see, again, an enemy tactic here. They're ungodly. They have no, thing, no regard for the things of God. Sexually immoral, but not just sexually immoral, but under the covering of grace, and that to the shame and disruption of Christ's church. So Jude's not speaking of matters that could be understood as moments of profound immaturity and failure. Um, this was, is, and always will be a willful assault informed by a heart that might speak much of God in his grace but truly knows neither. He's describing a continued uh, pattern of behavior here, not a moment of failure for which there could be restorative discipline, disqualification, but restorative discipline accompanying with much sorrow. Rather, this was a clear pattern. And we know all too well The enemy has distorted that which God has created and is blessed for the context of marriage. That's any form of sexual perversion, but to have such at the leadership and to have such as one who would claim to be in Christ and to cover it with grace is reprehensible. So again, the perversion of sexual matters in all forms has been a hallmark of destruction by countless persons throughout the entirety of history. But to shroud this offense in God's grace, that's inconceivable. And yet we know it has secured many an audience. And many a follower, the powerfully seductive adulteress of Proverbs. We see that woman who's who's wooing the young man to his death, who leads ignorant men to their graves. Well, she's done what now? Well, she's found her way into local fellowships by those by way of those who speak the things of God, but clearly not by the Spirit of God. And that, to me, is frightening, because again, it's a very very powerful form of uh, destruction. And if you can have Lady Folly and 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 the immorality that accompanies her wooing young men to their death, and then that carries over to a pulpit in a teaching context in the local fellowships. And that, not spoken of as death, but by the, spoken of being covered by the grace of God, that's terrifying and very impactful in destruction. And this sounds so absurd. and You might think well, that's really, really obvious. But time and time again, you can follow the breadcrumbs Of the financial and sexual immorality straight to the false teacher, preaching a Jesus whom they've never known and who, due time, will render their condemnation. Now, again, this is common, but not guaranteed in the identification of these offenders. But again, sometimes it's after they pass, and sometimes it's just a scandal waiting to erupt. And it's terrifying. But the Lord will keep his people. And plainly, it was a matter of great consistency. By those who Peter identified as coming, and Jude said, They've come. But as I also labored in my preparations, I realized maybe there's another element to this. Maybe there's another approach to this. Because some of them keep themselves clean. It's like a, in the form of clean, as like a drug dealer that doesn't do drugs. You understand? Somebody that promotes sexual immorality under the grace of God, but actually is not indicted under it themselves. So those who preach, teach, and promote deficient and profane expressions of God's grace may well not personally be participating in sexual offenses, but are nevertheless actively fostering them by their abuse of God's grace. And I think of Balaam in this regard. I don't know that he actually engaged in the sexual offenses that were recorded in Numbers, but he did set the trap for Israel, though, didn't he? very much so, to their own destruction. And while such an overt trap may not be being laid by the false teachers, it's plain enough that the abuse of grace will rush to such a common and carnal offense. And so if you abuse and misuse and misinterpret and misexplain the grace of God and use it as a covering for sin, it's only a matter of time before you've opened the door to this most common offense of sexual immorality. Especially, again, when you've provided an allowance for general sweeping of sin. And again, more can be said. We're going to move on to the third and final description here. These clandestine offenders also deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. A denial being a a refusal to acknowledge something. A denial is a a refusal to affirm or accept something. So they're denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And some denials obviously come from being fearful, right? Um, This happens with children, but it happens with adults. So we've had... um, Remember So one of the children here enjoys um, marker body art um, sometimes. And and uh, and Silas has experienced that at one season in his life. And Denise discovered he ate a pen or something and blew everywhere and confronted. Did you do it? No. And it's like Smurf explosion. <laughs> because you're frightened. Oh, I don't want to be caught. I don't want to. And that happens even with... People denying elements of the faith even. You know, do you believe this? No. What's the classic example? Peter did this, right? And so there is a measure of uh, frightening, fearful responses, but that's not what's being spoken of here. Because even good men have denied things they know to be true, only to be broken in their sorrows shortly thereafter and to provide a good confession. However, such is, again, not the case for the clandestine offender who makes clear and perhaps long-standing confessions and perhaps even maintains them when they're challenged under the scrutiny of others. But just as grace is made to be a morbid cover for sensual sin, so also confessions here are used as a covering for an unfaithful, deceptive, instructive life. So they might say, yes, I have a good testimony. Yes, I can affirm the gospel. And yes, I can cite and recite things that you can't. You can't draw from the wealth of biblical information I have and yet they are denying and denying and denying. The nature of their denial is that they first failed to deny themselves. You know, that's what the denial we've been called to, and that's the denial they failed to embrace, a denial of themselves, and have only escalated their offenses from there. Therefore, they're making verbal confessions filled with lives of pattern denials demonstrated the, demonstrating the reality that if you want to know who the clandestine offenders truly are, just give them time. So they might be Saying one thing, they're doing another, but give it time. They're the ones whose fruit never ripens. It's always produced rotten from the moment it's, it even comes forth. And where do we get that? Where do we get that kind of accusation? Well, Jesus made it in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. But they have a confession. They have a good confession, a faithful confession. They're not denying And Jesus has the response to that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy. And in your name cast out demons. And in your name do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And as Paul also echoes in his letter to Titus, chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, so they offer the verbal confession a verbal profession, but by their works they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. So ultimately you need need no special examination of the false teacher who denies Christ as their master and Lord. Just give their fruit time to express itself because the confession may be there, but it's a denying confession, and their fruit cannot help but to betray them. Claim as they will that Christ is master and Lord. They will deny him, if only by their conduct. Because we know that coming to Christ as our Redeemer means also coming to him as our Lord. And in this we find ourselves, like Jude, rooting our, uh, rooting our identity not in some lesser expressions of relationship to Jesus, but recognizing we are now slaves of righteousness and therefore, therefore slaves of a new master, namely Christ. And with this, we'll finish with our own charge to participate in Jude's call to contend recognizing that the rationale he has provided is no less a reality for us than it was for his own readers. And so we talked about this last week. It's not just for Apollos. It's not just for Timothy. It's not just for the apostles. It's for you, and it's for this local church. It'd be real easy. to guest comes, boy, we know who the guests are, but we don't know who they are. The Lord knows the hearts. And we recognize that if the Lord chooses to grow this body, it'll become even more of a challenge in terms of identifying things because we don't know. And we don't say that to do some kind of little pivot and kind of scanning people, like who's coming in, what is their hearts, what is their motivation, but because we know that these people will creep in in the body. We know that they've crept in many in other churches. There are those who continue to creep in among Christ's church, which is why it grieves me that so many churches have found themselves At an especially vulnerable place, they've made themselves more vulnerable to these clandestine offenders. A predicament that comes naturally when you do not do the Pauline-like maintenance, when you don't do the work ahead of time, the work of shepherding, discipling, praying, admonishing, and modeling, then there's long time, and when there's long time patterns of not contending, or at the least not contending vigorously enough for the faith, either from personal weakness, immaturity, ignorance, fear, or other expressions of sin, then what do you do? You open the door wider. So they're going to creep in, but you don't even have to make them creep. They can just walk in if you've diminished your proactive expressions of faithfulness and contending. And ultimately, this will lead lead to, what, a mixture of those who have infiltrated the ranks of the church and many in leadership who are unaware or too weak to address this matter, even some willfully turning a blind eye to things they know they ought not to because they're focusing on the faithful, you know, in as much as they can. All the while, the weaker are done what they're picked off, and the stronger are made more vulnerable. This also under the pretext of a deficient or even morbid expression of grace. We just need to extend grace to them. You know, grace says admonish, correct, rebuke, restore. to snatch them as though from the fire. And so we press hard on these matters here. And why do we press so hard? Why do we keep saying contend? And why do we say we're going to do what that requires of all of us, not just leadership, but one another? We do that because we love both Christ and his church. And while someone may yet creep in among us, we need to make it as challenging as possible for them to get in, as uncomfortable as possible for them to stay, and as swift as possible for them being revealed or expelled. And so we do the work and we engage in the call to contend for the faith. But as we've stated, it will cost you something. Likely it'll cost you a lot in the process of life, be it time, strength, relationships, welfare, possibly more, reputation and otherwise. So, with that in view, because it's going to cost you something, it might do us well to reflect back once more to Esther. And what was her position? Well, she was in a position to do right, wasn't she? We're in a position to do right. And quite literally though, her position of doing right could have cost her everything. And with this, remember, as we've already established, God will forever do what? He will forever preserve his word and he will keep his people, right? That's Things that he will do, but he's also called and commanded us to participate in this work by means of contending for the faith. Again, not because he uniquely needs you, he doesn't uniquely need me, or truthfully any of us, but because he has chosen this model and means of working for his glory and his people's eternal joy and good. So the call is clear contend earnestly, not because you're God's necessary means. But because just as Esther was reminded, if you do not so act, if you don't contend for the faith, that's okay. God will rise up another. He will accomplish his purposes. So it's our joy and our call to contend earnestly because it's our, we're doing this in service to our Master and Lord. And this is the work he's called us to. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we we thank you that you have delivered the faith to us, this body of doctrine. Everybody here has the opportunity to open a Bible, to read dozen-plus passages that we cited from this morning, to think about your truths, to wrestle with putting them to action, to better knowing you and walking in your uh revealed glories and and the grace that you've extended toward your people. And so we thank you, Lord, for your truth that you provided for us. We thank you for the local church and for one another, the fact that we are beloved in Christ and beloved to one another. Both of these things are precious, your word, your truth, and your people, your church. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us the grace to contend for them, that we would love you so as to love your word. That we'd love you so as to love your people. And that we'd contend earnestly for them. We'd struggle and fight and then accept whatever would be required of us accordingly. and That we'd find joy in that journey. We wouldn't just look at the beginning of our redemption in Christ and rejoice in that and look at the end and say, well, there's a future and glory but to also recognize there's a sweetness to the experience of growing in grace and maturing and struggling and being restored and walking with others and even and contending. And that you accomplish things in that that otherwise wouldn't be known or experienced, the glories that are due you that otherwise wouldn't be expressed. And we recognize the threat is of such a nature that it is very sobering when we have Jesus telling us to beware and Paul telling us to beware and Jude telling us to beware, and Peter telling us to beware, and John. Uh, Over and over and over again, there's a call to vigilance and the protection and the care of your church. So, Lord, would you be pleased to help us to, to strike a proper balance of generously, affectionately loving one another, thinking well of each other, thinking well of others, but also holding the ground, being faithful. Lord, we need your help, and we pray to this end that your name would be magnified as we contend for the faith that you have provided for your church and that you will ultimately keep. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.